Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry. Welcome to this week's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. For those of you who have seen the posts or the full episodes from the last, uh, I believe, two weeks now, uh, this is a continuing series that is leading up to the jury trial date that I have in my Allegan County Election Day 2020 case. Uh, for those of you who are just brand new to me and never heard anything about it, uh, I responded to um, Layton Township Hall to petition circulators asking for my legal help as an attorney uh, when they were circulating the constitutional amendment petition that I wrote for the state of Michigan and uh, government officials were trying to stop them from circulating this, the petition lawfully and threatening them with arrest, criminal trespass. Um, <clears throat> this case has been ongoing and yes, I did say election day or November 3rd, 2020, which means this case is 19 months old now. And yes, still going. So, man, it's been a nightmare and um, I'm sure this happens to you. But when you know something very in innately, it's something very personal to you. It's um, a situation in your life or whatever, a project that you've been working on, you know it so well that sometimes uh, some of the details or some of the pieces to it, you don't always think to explain in uh, the greatest detail because it's just those pieces are just kind of assumed to you at this point. Well, I hope that doesn't happen here today because obviously I've been living this nightmare for the last 19 months and I know the law very well and I know the facts of the case very well. I know who the people are and what their duties and responsibilities are and what the rights of the accused are. And uh, I know them so uh, second nature like that uh, it's my hope I'm able to convey very important information to you today about your own uh, participation in court proceedings or just knowledge about things in general um, without uh, skipping over some of those um, seemingly assumed points at, at, uh, at this juncture. So <clears throat> with that being said, I did prepare some slides to kind of help facilitate the discussion but I'm hoping that uh, it doesn't seem all too uh, overwhelming and legalese, but uh, here we go. Um, all right, I'm gonna add this in. Okay, so today we're talking about jurisdiction. What is it? Uh, well, most simply put, it's the court's power to hear and decide a case. So um, it's not just for courts to have jurisdiction, but we often will think of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, if you're driving from Michigan down to Florida and uh, you happen to be speeding when you get to uh, Georgia, you cross over that Florida border and uh, Georgia state police are behind you and they uh, turn their lights on and uh, try to get you pulled over, 
but you're already in Florida, they don't have jurisdiction because they are law enforcement officers for the state of Georgia. So it applies not just to courts, but it's simple to um, think of the conversation in terms of one context at a time. So, um, okay. Um, so there are, I mean, if you look at Black's Law Dictionary, there's, um, I don't even know, like four full pages, which is a lot considering how small the print is, of different types of jurisdiction that, that the um, Black's Law Dictionary covers or discusses, explains in some way. Uh, they're not all main types or mutually exclusive. For example, you might have, um, you might hear of a court that has concurrent jurisdiction with another court. That means two different courts might have jurisdiction over the same case at the same time, uh, but for different reasons. That um, is, uh, it's still a type of jurisdiction, but it's not a main type of jurisdiction, a source of power or authority that a court would have to hear a case that's involving you. So, all right, um, let's go ahead and take a look then that the um, main um, types of jurisdiction essentially then are territorial jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction, and subject matter jurisdiction. Now, I realize these all might start sounding like a whole bunch of legalese, legal terms that are going right over your head and it's uh, very confusing or boring, uh, but I guarantee you, if you hang in there with me, we'll be able to walk through these so you can see really how simple they really are and uh, how you need to know this information to be able to best protect your rights now and in the future. So territorial jurisdiction, it's that first super legally sounding term, uh, but basically it's physical location. It's the power of the court to hear cases arising in or involving persons residing within a defined territory. That's Black's Law Dictionary, uh, not my words. But basically, if you, um, well, I'm not going to jump ahead of myself. Let's look at an example. The um, 57th District Court only has jurisdiction over matters that take place in Allegan County. That is the court that's uh, currently presiding over the case that I've been talking about from 11-3-2020. Uh, 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 but they can't hear cases um, of stuff that happens in Ionia County or uh, in Midland or, you know, up in the UP. Um, so it's only that court's jurisdiction only uh, covers things or people that happen to be within that particular county. Uh, let's see here. So personal jurisdiction. This is also very important. These are not things that are just boring legal terms. These are things the court has to have in order to do something. This personal jurisdiction is a court's power to bring a person into its adjudicative process. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of legal terms. What does it really mean? It's the court's authority to decide matters 
for a particular person. So if uh, there's an adult guardianship case or a divorce and custody case or, um, you know, a, a property dispute, you know, two neighbors uh, disputing a, a fence line or something like that. Um, it's the ability of the court to decide a case over that particular set of people uh, that are in the case. So this is an example where there's a person who, uh, such as myself, I've never lived in California, okay? So uh, where you have a person who's never lived in California, never visited California, never done any business in California, uh, owns no property in California, well, then no court in California would have personal jurisdiction over that person. I'm an example of that. Never been to California, don't own property there, haven't done business there, um, I've never visited, don't, you know, whatever, never lived there. Uh, so no court there could try to bring me into its jurisdiction uh, because they personally, no matter what the topic is, uh, they don't have any jurisdiction over me. Okay, so subject matter jurisdiction. Man, we're only a few minutes into this thing and I'm already getting to the third main point. I guarantee you there's going to be a lot here today. So uh, it's going to still be worth your while in case you were looking for the full episode and not just a, a brief overview. So the third kind of main types of jurisdiction here is subject matter jurisdiction, which is jurisdiction over the nature of the case and the type of relief sought. So what kind of case is it? And what is it that they're asking the court to do by filing the case? That could be in a civil case. It could be in a criminal case. Let's kind of see how this um, unfolds a bit. So an example uh, of this kind of um, subject matter jurisdiction. So I'm licensed, admitted to practice in uh, the Eastern District of Michigan uh, Federal Courts, Western District of Michigan Federal Courts. Um, I, I can do bankruptcy cases specifically, um, well, as well as other cases. But um, in the federal bankruptcy courts, those courts cannot hear or decide anything to do with divorce, custody, or child support cases. They literally don't have subject matter jurisdiction over basically anything outside of bankruptcy. So if you um, want to file a custody case and you go down to the bankruptcy court clerk office, that court clerk is going to be like, uh, you can't file for custody or divorce here. You got to go to the appropriate court for that. Okay, so hopefully that's a very clear example of the subject matter jurisdiction. It's really literally as simple as that, subject matter issue jurisdiction, I guess you could say is another another way to look at it. What what issue is being discussed? Okay, so sometimes no court has jurisdiction over something. Okay, so let me back up a second. In this slide, we're looking at um, the fact that certain courts have jurisdiction over certain things. And so sometimes you're bringing your claim to the wrong kind of court and they might tell you, hey, you know what? We can't help you. You got to go to that court. Okay. That's, that's a possibility. But sometimes no court has jurisdiction to hear the case at all. Doesn't matter where you go. No court is able to do it. Why? Well, let's look at this a little bit more. So um, a trial court 
must dismiss an action, get rid of it completely, when there is a lack of subject matter jurisdiction. We're going to pause on that for a minute. So this is, it's just one of many examples, but this is a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2014 that, and this, by the way, I should say, you guys should know by now, I focus on, um, on um, Michigan and Florida and, you know, federal, uh, federally applicable uh, cases and uh, statutes and court rules and things like that. But these concepts, I should have said from the very beginning, these concepts are the same throughout the entire United States. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter what county or municipality. If you are in the United States, then you cannot be brought into court if you um, if that court does not have personal jurisdiction over you as an individual. If you have um, uh, if if the court has no uh, territorial jurisdiction, like the the physical location of what they're trying to uh, decide about has nothing to do with them. Again, that example of uh, if you're in Georgia and you get, um, you know, you're speeding in Georgia, but you're on your way to Florida, whatever, right? So let's say a, um, you know, you get to Florida and, uh, you know, a cop basically issues you the ticket knowing that they, they saw you speeding over there in Georgia, but they're a Florida police officer and they saw you <clears throat> speeding. And by the time you got into Florida, you were no longer speeding, but they're going to go ahead and uh, issue you that ticket. You go to court. That court in Florida does not have territorial jurisdiction over that crime of speeding uh, because it might be a crime, might be civil infraction, but just follow the example. They don't have jurisdiction over that because the territory is not theirs. It happened in Georgia, a totally different state. Okay. So really the physical location jurisdiction, the personal jurisdiction over you as a person, those are necessary. Okay. Some of those can be waived though. Meaning if you don't go into court the first time and say, Hey court, you don't have jurisdiction over me. I've never been here. I don't have property here. I don't, whatever. You need to dismiss this case or uh, listen, court, uh, whatever you're claiming that that happened, you're claiming it happened in a different state. You don't have territorial jurisdiction. This didn't happen physically within uh, the bounds of what you're allowed to um, decide on. You have to raise those kinds of objections or issues right away. Otherwise, if you just keep going through your case and you file an answer that says, you know, let's say it was a contract case. OK, somebody sued you uh, in California court about this contract and you've never been to California. You don't do business in California. The contract has nothing to do with California. The, there's no property located in California that has anything to do with this transaction at all. But for whatever reason, the plaintiff decided to sue you in a California court. Why? Well, probably to make it a real pain in the butt for you and because they know it would be expensive for you to try to find a California licensed attorney and blah, 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 right? If you don't answer the, the complaint right away by saying to the court, hey, whoa, you don't have jurisdiction over me personally and you don't have jurisdiction over um, the, the territory involved because what happened didn't even happen here. 
those issues are things that you do have to raise right away. Otherwise, if you just continue defending the action and talking about the merits of the case itself, like who's right and who's wrong about this contract, then you waive any claim to be able to argue later, hey, court, hey, you don't have the right to even start this case uh, over me. No, by that point, you've you've said, yeah, it, it, basically what the courts are saying is you've basically said, well, yeah, um, you might not have had, you know, the authority over this case in the beginning, but whatever, I'm just going to go through with it and, and continue with this case. So it's important that you know these kinds of things, because if, if something does happen to you, you can't always rely on an attorney to help you, even if you have an attorney. Not every attorney knows every single court rule or law or, you know, whatever. Um, some attorneys just have a bad day or they just make mistakes or whatever. You need to know that there are certain things that have to be brought up right away. Otherwise, you can never bring them up again. So these are some of those things. Now, but what about subject matter jurisdiction? Okay. Getting back to subject matter jurisdiction. A trial court has to dismiss a case where they don't have subject matter jurisdiction and a person in the case, a party to the case, can't be stopped from raising that issue to the court. So really, what does that mean? Let's think about this for a second. In my example, for those of you who have been following along with my Allegan County case, last um well, in January 2020, no, 2021, I was finally allowed to obtain a hearing date for February for a motion to dismiss. And um, I argued several things, but um, even though I didn't call it a subject matter jurisdiction issue, I very clearly laid out all the reasons why the court literally has no jurisdiction over this kind of a case for many reasons. The court had to hear that out and determine whether it has the jurisdiction or not. It was not allowed to say, no, 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 no. You can't talk about that here. You just you just got to have your trial and, and we'll just get right on with it. So in looking at this, the court stopped me from raising the jurisdiction issue and they didn't have the right to do that. So more specifically, when you don't have subject matter jurisdiction in court, you can raise this issue at any time. And that issue cannot be waived. So we talked a minute ago about like personal jurisdiction or territorial jurisdiction, things that, you know, it seems inherently wrong for the court to even continue proceeding if they don't have jurisdiction over you as a person. But if you don't raise that right away, that right to raise it is gone. This subject matter jurisdiction where the court, that particular court can't ever hear those kinds of cases at all, that issue can be raised at any time. You can even wait after you've had a whole trial and you're found guilty if it's a criminal case or, you know, same thing, uh, but similarly, um, you know, similar results, but in a civil case, you can raise it after the case is done because the court doesn't have jurisdiction of the most important kind, subject matter jurisdiction. So you can raise those issues at any time. Okay, so I wanted to include some wording from cases I, and I don't 
case law is not a thing. Case precedent can be very helpful in resolving issues, um, though, and that's why I wanted to um, include some of these uh, pieces here. So this is from, I'll go ahead and make it bigger. This is from uh, Michigan Supreme Court case. Again, these things hold true um, almost verbatim in every other jurisdiction. Um, you need to double check and look them up and see if they're a court rule or if it's just done by cases or statutes or in your state constitution. But I guarantee you these things are there. The court has to have subject matter jurisdiction. That's that's a given in um, the context of due process of law that we've talked about in recent weeks. The United States Constitution requires that none of your life, liberty, or property will ever be taken away, infringed, whatever, without there being due process of law. And every court, especially the U.S. Supreme Court, would agree that you have to have, uh, the court has to have the ability to hear that kind of case in the first place if they're ever going to be able to take away any part of your life your liberty, or your property. So um, the practical result of a successful challenge to, to subject matter jurisdiction, meaning uh, what, what is the practical result when you um, say to the court, <clears throat> um, let's, say, let's say you had a trial and you're raising this on appeal afterwards, okay? And you're saying to the appeals court, listen, this court, lower court, didn't have subject matter jurisdiction. They never had the ability to hear this kind of case at all, right? It's the bankruptcy court, federal bankruptcy court, trying to decide a divorce. They don't have the ability to do that. It's something like that. <clears throat> then if the court said, looks at it, the, the appeals court, they look at it and they go, oh my gosh, you're right. That court doesn't, have, they don't have the right to do that. What were they thinking? then the practical result, what actually happens is that the whole case is essentially undone. It's just erased. And um, as it says <clears throat> in this Michigan Supreme Court case, the practical result is that it's to prevent the trial from taking place at all, rather than to prescribe procedural rules that govern the conduct of, of trial. So sometimes you have situations where the court says, um, uh, there's some um, gray areas that just came to my mind as examples, and I want to stay away from those. But um, there are times anyway where uh, the court says, listen, you have to do things in a certain way, even certain constitutional, uh, constitutionally protected rights. Unfortunately, our courts have said, well, yeah, you have a right to that. But if you don't challenge it right away, or you don't make the right objection up front in your trial, then you can't just go to the appeals court and say, hey, fix this. Um, but um, basically, or if you go to if you go to an appeals court and uh, through an interlocutory appeal, okay, you're going to the court that's higher up saying, wait a minute, I have this case. This trial is coming. It's, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, they, the court's denying my rights. Maybe uh, the court is, it's a criminal case and the court is not um, excluding evidence 
that's fruit of the poisonous tree, right? It was taken without a proper search warrant and there was no reason why the police should have confiscated my, my things. There's no reason why they should have that evidence in the first place. That evidence should be excluded. Well, if you bring that up to an appeals court and the appeals court says, yep, that court screwed that up, that particular piece of evidence is out, then what they're doing is they're giving directions or limits on how the case happens. That by itself doesn't throw the case out. Now, maybe there's no other evidence to even bring a case to trial. That's a different story, uh, in which case it might need to be thrown out. But, but in the case of a certain piece of evidence being thrown out, that particular piece just deals with a higher court telling the lower court, hey, you got to do your trial this way. Go ahead and have trial, but it has to happen this way. But in a subject matter jurisdiction challenge where you are saying to the higher court, listen, this lower court, they don't know what the heck they're doing because they can't do these kinds of cases. They literally don't have jurisdiction over this kind of case at all. Then if the court of appeals agrees with you or Supreme Court or whatever appeals court, if they agree with you, they're going to basically erase that whole thing and undo that trial, and it's going to be as though the trial never took place. So what happens if the case has already been done and you and there's a conviction or it's a civil case and the case is over and there's a judgment against you? A judgment of conviction pronounced by a court without jurisdiction is void. So let's kind of pause on that for a minute. So um, the, um, sorry, I got distracted by some of the comments, uh, comment discussion that are going on in the, in the, um, some of our social media platforms right now. But um, so a judgment of conviction by a court where the court has no subject matter jurisdiction, it's as though it doesn't even exist. So you could go all the way through all the, the arrest and the pretrial hearings and, you know, discovery exchanges and picking a jury and, you know, two months of trial. And it could be a highly publicized case that's on national TV and the whole world knows about it. And uh, there's hundreds of witnesses and tons of evidence. And the jury in the end says, yep, this person is guilty. If that court that heard the case never had jurisdiction over that kind of case to begin with, then it, the conviction is irrelevant. It's, it's like it's fake. It goes away. It's void. And the U.S. Supreme Court almost 100 years ago very clearly said that a judge of the United States, not of federal courts alone, but a judge anywhere in the United States has to be alert to the facts that if they're true, would make the trial void. What does this mean? Basically, if a party doesn't even raise the issue, okay, but the judge is starting to hear things, like say, for example, easiest example, right? Uh, federal bankruptcy court, Somehow the court clerks allow this person to file their um, divorce case or their custody case, right? And uh, there's a hearing and the court's sitting in the hearing and it's a bankruptcy court. And the plaintiff is saying, yeah, so I want you to give me full custody of my kids and I want the house and the cars and all the money. The judge 
has to, on his own, take a second and go, well, actually, I can't decide any of these issues. This whole case has, I can't, I don't have subject matter jurisdiction. I can't decide any of these issues. I have to throw the case out. You have to go to the right kind of court for that. Okay. But what if it's something where no court has subject matter jurisdiction, like we mentioned before? Well, try not to get ahead of myself, but very quick example. If you have um, a, a criminal case where somebody is arrested for just being present in a place open to the general public. So there is, um, um, goodness, there's uh, a movie theater. Somebody is at a movie theater and uh, the movie theater said uh, to this individual, hey, you got to go. We just don't want you here. And the person's like, what? what? I bought a ticket. I'm just going to sit down and watch the movie. I mean, I even bought some popcorn. And they're like, no, no, no. We don't like you. You got to go. And there's no reason. They just didn't want the person there. And so they have them arrested for trespassing. Uh, that's the, that's potentially even private property, but it's property open to the general public. No court has jurisdiction over that kind of a case because there is no crime of simply trespassing on land or property open to the general public. If everybody's allowed, everybody's allowed, right? So if there is a case that's held on that and there is a trial, that um, trial would, uh, the result of that trial would be voided no matter what happened in it. And it's the judge's job, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, for almost 100 years now, it's the judge's job to find these issues, even if the parties don't know about them or uh, the attorneys do a bad job and let it slide. If everybody else screws up, it still falls on the judge to identify, hey, I don't have jurisdiction over this kind of a case. All right. So let's look at some very clear examples aside from the whole bankruptcy um, concept, right? In my case, to establish that I was guilty of criminal trespass under Michigan state law, the prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I remained on property, that I was there without lawful authority or a good faith claim that I had lawful authority. After someone told me to leave and the person who told me to leave had lawful authority to remove me. Those are the four basic pieces to that. Okay. So, um, the, uh, the main concept here, <clears throat> um, I mean, really we don't disagree about some of these. Okay. So one, did I remain on the property after someone told me to leave? Yes. I'm going to say that I did. I'm going to say the video shows that. Um, I'll agree that uh, the people I was there to represent, they were remaining on the property after being told to leave. Uh, so I'll agree for the time being that, that number one and number three, they're, they're agreed to. I remained on property after someone told me I had to leave. But there's those two other pieces, right? So 
The first of those important pieces that still remain is the fact that the prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I did not have lawful authority to be there or that um, I had even good faith to think that I had authority to be there. All right. So there's a lot of cases where, um, you know, somebody for whatever reason, maybe um, it's similar to um, even like a, a theft case. Right. So maybe there's a criminal um, a criminal theft, criminal theft case where someone's being charged with um, doing something with somebody else's property. But they're like, wait a minute. I have the right to have this property. I, you know, I bought it from this legitimate place and there seemed to be a, a title and I got the title and I had no way to know that this property had been stolen from somebody else or whatever. No, I, I had the right to have the property. Well, there's no criminal intent for that person to, um, you know, remain there or to, you know, do something with that property uh, without authority. Same thing with trespassing. If you are, let's say you go to, um, let's say you go to somebody's house and uh, there's a party and man, is it crowded. You were invited to the party and you go and uh, you've never been there before, but you go into this house, you see lots of people are there partying it up by the time you get there and you don't really recognize anybody. So you walk around for quite a while before uh, really engaging with somebody in conversation because you're just, you're like, oh, I feel awkward. I can't find any of my friends. What's going on? Um, and uh, let's say somebody tells you to leave and you're like, no, man, I really, I got it. I can't leave. I got to wait for my, I, you know, the, I'm trying to find my friend who invited me here, the person who's throwing this party. I, I mean, I have the right to be here. I just, I can't find my friend. You know, let me just find my friend. Like, no, 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 you got to go. Right. And they're threatening you with trespassing. Well, what if it turns out <laughs> that you were actually at uh, the wrong party, that the house two doors down also had a pretty jamming party that night. And that's the house you're supposed to be at, but it was dark. You didn't see the numbers correctly. And Oops, you literally didn't have the right to be where you were, but you honestly thought you had the right to be there. That would be an example where you had a good faith claim of a lawful authority to be there that the owner of the property had personally invited you and this random other person's trying to tell you to leave. And you're like, no. Okay, so um, let's look at that a little bit more clearly. Under what authority did I have to be at Allegan Township uh, that day, right? Did I have lawful authority to be there? Well, let's start with the fact that um, people have authority to act unless a legal and constitutional restriction is created. That's super important. So let's kind of think about that for a minute. Regardless of the fact we're talking about different types of jurisdiction, regardless of the fact that we're talking about my specific case as an example, where a court lacks jurisdiction for a variety of reasons. Let's all remember that we have rights given to us by God. We don't get our rights from the government. We don't look to the government for permission. No, the, the, we start with the assumption that we have authority to do things, to live freely, unless there is a legal and constitutional restriction on that kind of action. So, for example, a trespassing restriction. 
you can't exercise your rights in a way that stops someone else from exercising their own rights, such as, you know, your right to just be free and move and, and whatever. Uh, you can't go and, and have a party and do whatever you want over on your neighbor's property, right? Your neighbor also has rights and they have a right to the exclusive use of their own property. So there are laws that stop you from um, trespassing on somebody else's private um, property, not open to the general public, but like their house or their hunting cabin, right? Well, what about in this situation? Government property, government-owned property is held for the use of the public, right? For the public. Um, and it's important uh, for us to look at that because, hold on, I'm trying to get you some additional thoughts on here. Um, shoot, I don't think I included this later. Um Hmm. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. So I'll say this now. So the government doesn't have its own source of rights or, you know, property ownership or uh, things like that. Okay. So let's think about that. The government, uh, well, I do get into that later. We'll get into to that, but government owned property because the government doesn't have its own source of rights and authority to do whatever it feels like. No, government, even state government or local government, if you're a state's rights kind of person, um, state's rights don't exist. State powers exist. Individuals are the ones bestowed rights given to us by God. Okay. So anyway, the government at any level doesn't have any right to own property or whatever. If they own property, it's on behalf or for the people. So government also can't restrict public access to the property. It's being held for the people, right? They can't restrict public ac access unless the law specifically allows a certain restriction and it's for a valid purpose, right? There's all kinds of different things that the constitution says, whoa, you can't exclude somebody on this government property because of this or because of this, right? So there, you start with the assumption that when it's government-owned property, because it is held for the public, that the public have the right to access that property unless there's a legitimate restriction that means that the public can't access that property. Okay, so for property open to the general public, all, everybody, all members of the public have an equal right of access. That is from a court case that if you look at the documents that I've shared um, that I have filed in this Allegan County case, uh, both the documents that are on my website, as well as the new ones I shared just last week. And uh, they're also, those new ones are not on the main Allegan County page of my website, but they are on the updates um, uh, tab. There's an updates um there's a post on that updates page showing you the link to all the recent ones I just filed last week. So all of these types of things, if you're looking for the actual source of these quotes, please make sure to go ahead and uh, follow up with those sources because these uh, quotes are in uh, those documents and you can find them all. But all members of the public, when you have, when you have property that's open to the general public, Everyone has a right to access that property. And where does that come from? 
well, it's an equal protection claim. That's why Sam's or Costco or Walmart or Menards or Home Depot or any, they cannot stop you from going onto their property, even though it's private property, it's a private business. They can't stop you from going onto their property for some discriminatory reason, just because they don't want you there, because they don't like the color of your skin, because they don't like people who are disabled. They don't like whatever. They can't stop you from being there because the Constitution doesn't say equal application of all laws. It's worded to say equal protection of the laws, because laws, remember, the purpose of the Constitution, the purpose of government is to protect your liberties, your God-given rights. If the government is not protecting your individual liberties, it's not doing its dang job. So no one is allowed to infringe upon the rights of others. And that's why we're guaranteed equal protection of the law. So now the First Amendment, the First Amendment, that's your rights to free speech, your rights to assemble peacefully, your right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Your First Amendment rights, those that are guaranteed or protected by the First Amendment, those protect a right of access to places traditionally open to the public. So if you have a place like a... Um, uh, amphitheater that's out at a park or, you know, streets where there's often parades or um, a, a government building where um, public bodies meet. Those types of places are considered in the First Amendment. Those are considered open public forums. Okay. And so when you have um when you have a place that is traditionally open to the public, the First Amendment protects your right of access to be there. What about more specific types of First Amendment things, right? Well, soliciting signatures for a petition or associating with others to achieve ballot access. Those are things that happened in the... Um, uh, in, in my case, right? So I, the, the people that called me for help were soliciting signatures. They were collecting signatures, uh, for a, a political issue and that type of thing, soliciting signatures or collecting signatures for a petition is protected, specifically protected, one of the highest levels of protection by the First Amendment. That's what the courts have all said. They've, they've agreed on this, okay? Also, associating to achieve ballot access, meaning um, collecting signatures or doing what you need to do uh, to follow the legal procedures so that your issue or your candidate makes it onto the ballot for the public to vote on, that ballot access, that right to ballot access is very heavily guarded, very heavily. So that's why it is said that um, it is the state legislatures that have to decide, you know, things related to the time, place, and manner of elections, uh, for example, because uh, there has to be uniform treatment. There has to be, everything has to be done in a way that people, voters, have the right to not only go and vote 
on issues that are on a ballot, but they have the right to put people or issues on a ballot. So I wrote the Restore Freedom Initiative Constitutional Amendment Petition. And we were collecting signatures for the purpose of getting that petition on the um, November, would have been 2022? At that point, we had passed the deadline for the 2020 ballot. So we were working on getting it on the November 2022, this upcoming general election. Had we not been stopped from getting all the signatures we needed, then it would have been on the ballot and the people would have been able to vote whether they were okay with tyranny or whether they wanted firm restrictions and consequences put in place when government officials violated the state or federal constitution. Simple as that. So that ballot access is um, <clears throat> strongly protected because if you can't get your candidate on the, on, on the ballot to have people vote for him or her, if you can't get your particular issue on the ballot and, and state law allows for that kind of thing, but your issue was stopped, then you're cut out of the whole voting concept or petitioning your government for redress of grievances altogether. So, um, well, hold on. Let's make sure I covered all the, yeah, so I covered all that. Okay. So what do those go to? I guess I should kind of focus on that point. These issues go to the fact that I doing all these things that we've been talking about, I had lawful authority to be where I was because we were, uh, I had the same amount of access to everybody else, right? Um, to that property as everybody else. I had um, First Amendment, general First Amendment claims to freedom of speech, but we were collecting signatures to get the petition that I wrote on the next general election ballot. So, um, I had every legal authority to be there where we were, how we were doing it. Now, let's look at another aspect of this. I showed up as a lawyer. Nobody denies this. They know that. The sole reason was I was talking to the deputy on the phone and we were not able to resolve this issue. While not able to resolve it over the phone, I said, you know what? I will just come and talk to you about it in person. He said, yep, I'll be here waiting. Huh. Well, nobody wanted to talk about the law when I got there. Instead, they violently arrested me because, you know, that's what you do when you are wrong. Uh, so thinking about the fact that I showed up there as an attorney, a lawyer is a part of the judicial system charged with upholding the law. Yeah, you heard that right. I'm not a cop. I'm a lawyer. And it's my job. Part of my duties as a lawyer are to ensure that I am doing my part to uphold the law. And the law said that those circulators had a right to be there. They were far enough away by state law and by court precedent, okay? They were not harassing voters. They were not getting in the way of voters. They were not infringing on the ability of the uh, poll workers to do their job. No, they had a right to be there. So I had my job as a lawyer in that context, I was charged with upholding the law. And in that context, 
uh, I had a duty when necessary, and it was necessary there, to challenge the rectitude of official action and uphold legal process. What does that mean? Yeah, that means I had the duty to challenge that cop, to tell Deputy Langloy and his two little buddies, you guys don't have the authority to arrest these people because they're following state law. Let's look at what the state law says. Let's talk about this. That was my job. And that's what I did. And nobody disputes that's what I did. But also, a lawyer may refuse to comply with an obligation imposed by law upon a good faith belief that no valid obligation exists. Think about that for a minute. There isn't even a law that says that I couldn't do this. But let's say for a second that they were right about how they were reading the trespass law. If I'm thinking, dang, they want me to leave. And maybe a law says that I have to leave, but that's not a valid thing. I have a duty to stay here to protect the interests of my clients. Then I don't have to follow some invalid regulation that would stop me from doing that duty. And of course, you have the general concept that a lawyer has a duty to protect and inform the public. That was what I was doing. I was protecting the voters uh, to be able to have that access to sign. I was protecting the people that were there, the circulators that were there to collect signatures. Uh, I guess one thing that hasn't really come out much, I'll just kind of focus in a little bit more on that. Um, I was protecting the right to petition in general, not just to be the one offering the petition, but I was trying to explain to them as well that the petitioning itself has a right to be there, meaning that voters have the right to come and sign if they want. This isn't uh, talked about very often, but it's it's in the videos, uh, some of the video live streaming footage from that day, um, as well as other, you know, um, affidavit, sworn affidavits and everything else. But the officers, the, the deputies involved that day literally turned to voters, both before I got there and after, when a circulator was talking to a voter who approached the circulators. Circulator wa or voter walks up after they vote, go over to the circulator and say, hey, you got signs, what's this? And they're like, oh, hey, we have a petition. And they're like, oh, cool, what's your petition about? And they're telling them what the petition is about. <laughs> and the voter's like, great, I want to sign that. The deputies literally turned to the voter and said, go, you don't have the right to sign this petition. You have to leave. And they turned to the circulator and they said, stop, you can't tell voters about this petition. You have to go. <laughs> Seriously? So it is literally, I had a duty to protect the public about what was happening from what was happening from these deputies. So that is all uh, relating to the fact that I had and still have lawful authority to be there that day. But let's focus on the last part of that. I could just have a good faith claim of lawful authority. I think it's pretty damn clear that I have a, a at least a good faith claim, even if someone decides in the end, man, this Catherine Henry, she was wrong about the law. The law did not say that. 
there's no doubt that I had an actual real claim, like a bona fide real claim. I wasn't making it up. I was there. My sole purpose was because I believed that the circulators had a right to be there. So obviously I thought I had a right to be there as the person who wrote the thing, right? So, but the prosecutor, remember the prosecutor has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that I stayed there without lawful authority or even a good faith claim that I had lawful authority. Clearly they're not gonna be able to do that. So they don't have jurisdiction. There's no subject matter jurisdiction over a case like this, not just in mine, but in any trespass case where the, prosec where the prosecutor cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt, no less, that the accused didn't have uh, that lawful authority, nor did they have uh, a, a good faith claim that they had a right to be there, without being able to prove those things beyond a reasonable doubt, or even um, alleging that those things are true, without even alleging that's even a part of this crime, there's no crime. Literally, it's not a crime. The court has no jurisdiction over, no court has jurisdiction over su such a thing. But what about that second part, right? So the prosecutor also has to prove, it's actually the fourth element, but the, the two that are really in dispute here, that the person who told me I had to leave had authority to remove me from the property. In this case, the township clerk. Did the township clerk have lawful authority to kick me off that property? Well, let's take a look at this. In my case, the government, all government, this isn't just in my case, let's take a step back from my case, government was created by the people, it acts on behalf of the people, and it derives its authority solely from the people. And yes, all of that, there's sites to all of that in all of my briefs related to this case, as well as that particular one I think I also cited um, in my work um, against the uh, Michigan governor's executive orders in 2020. Uh, but anyway, there's plenty of places you can find that in my documents uh, on my website. So as we the people, we, through our constitution, we defined and limited the powers of government. And yes, those are quotes from the Michigan Supreme Court in the citizens' um, protecting Michigan's constitution, that case, which is from uh, July of 2018, the Michigan Supreme Court said that we, the people, through our constitution, defined and limited the powers of government. So because we defined and limited the power of government, no government entity or government official has the authority to act. They don't have the authority to take any action unless that authority is specifically given to them in either the U.S. or state constitutions. Let's think about that. We the people created the government. We the people created the system of government and the constitution and the constitution's job, not according to me, but according to the Supreme Court, the constitution's job is to define the powers of government and to limit the powers of government, not to give rights because the government has no rights at all. If you look at the 10th Amendment, it's not a state's rights thing. No, 
That word does not appear there. No. If you look at the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people because the people are given rights and liberties and blessings of liberty uh, and freedom by God. So this Constitution and all the rights that are talked about and preserved and protected through the Constitution, these are only some of them, but we keep all the other rights that God gave us. That's the Ninth Amendment or Article 23, Section 1 of the Michigan State Constitution. The Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is talking about powers, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited to it by the, the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So powers are reserved to the people or to state government, but rights are given to the people. So the government has no source of rights. The government has no source to own its own property and exclude other people from its property. The government doesn't have the right to do that. So the clerk can point to no part of the U.S. Constitution, the Michigan Constitution, or state law that gives her the authority to remove me from this property, this government property open to the general public. But let's take another look at whether this clerk had the authority to remove me. Again, this is in the context of subject matter jurisdiction. This is trying to give you an example. Many of you have been following this since, well, before I even wrote the petition, let alone um, circulated it and had this issue on election day and had all these court hearings afterwards. So I'm trying to use this case to help explain this because it's something that, um, again, subject matter jurisdiction, no court in any state, in any level of government anywhere can ever decide a case if they don't have subject matter jurisdiction. And you have the right to raise that even late, even after the case has uh, concluded, after the trial has happened. And that's civil cases, criminal cases, any case. You have the right to raise it at any time because a court that doesn't have jurisdiction over that kind of case or to issue that kind of judgment or relief or order, uh, it's void. It's as though it didn't even happen. And you can't just waive that right. You can't say, oh, I know the court really doesn't have jurisdiction over this kind of a case, but I'm okay with it. No, that's not a thing. So uh, this is something that no matter what state you're in, no matter if you're an attorney or you're not an attorney, whether you've been politically outspoken so far or not, whether you have had criminal cases, uh, experience with criminal cases or not, or civil cases, if you're ever going to be able to preserve your own freedom, to fight for your own rights, to recognize when the government has done wrong, you need to... Um, you need to recognize the things that the court never has the right to do and that you always have the right to bring up every time. And you can't be stopped, even though the courts obviously tried to stop me from raising this. So these, these examples here, these next things I'm talking about are specific ways that this, um, this clerk, this township clerk was specifically 
not given authority. She was removed of any authority that might have been given to her to kick me off the property that day. Again, I want you to think of these examples as um, kind of take it all in because it might apply to something that you or someone you know is dealing with. And I want you to be able to apply this in those contexts as well. So there's a state law, MCL 600-1825 sub part three, that prohibits me from being arrested while the fact that I was there serving as an attorney. That's important because do you ever want uh, to think, well, gosh, you know, um, I know I have the right to be here. I know I have the right to have an attorney here to help me and represent me and fight for my interests. But dang, I know no attorney is going to come out here because they might be arrested with the same thing I'm being arrested for. Oh, what attorney in their right mind is going to risk their own arrest just to show up on scene to help you? No, they'll say, you know what? I will gladly help you after the situation is over, after you've been booked and released. I will come on board and I will file all the paperwork that we need to file. They're not going to risk their own liberty to save yours. That is, unless they're me, because I was willing to be arrested um, instead of arresting uh, the circulators that day. But uh, I'm going to think that I'm a little bit of a rarity. So you need to have confidence that when you're entitled to defend your rights, you're also entitled to, especially when it's talking about a criminal case, you have the right to be represented by an attorney. And you have a right to have that attorney be free from uh, risking their own liberty just to physically be present to to, um, try to stop an illegal arrest of you. This also happened, though, in the context of um, other public officials, such as township trustees that were holding public meetings in person. Oh my gosh, a public meeting in person, um, despite different orders by um, MDHHS or the Michigan governor. The state police went in and uh, tried to break up a meeting up in northern Michigan when these orders were in place that said people can't, you know, assemble um, because of the big bad C word. Well, um, those police, uh, state state police went in there and they were going to threaten Uh, those township trustees with arrest if they were going to have these meetings in person, public meetings. Well, they can't be arrested for that. There's a state law that prohibits them from being arrested when they're doing their job, unless one of three small exceptions exist, and that is not applicable to the situation or in that example either. So There's another law, MCL 750.543Z. Now, some of these might also be in your own state if you're outside of Michigan. But again, even if there's not a verbatim copy of this law, just keep these as an example of what, um, you know, might be going on in your own case, right? So there is a law that says that the prosecutor shall not prosecute any person for conduct presumptively protected by the First Amendment. How have they gotten around this so far? Well, they haven't really talked about the merits of the case, but the judge and prosecutor have briefly mentioned, oh, this case doesn't have anything to do with First Amendment 
your First Amendment rights. No, 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 no. This case is about your car being there. Your car was trespassing. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because there is no criminal trespass by a car. That's also, there's no subject matter jurisdiction for that, okay? Um, they were trespassing me uh, for what I was there for. They didn't want me there because we were circulating this petition. And that is conduct presumptively protected. Uh, there is a presumption that I am protected by the First Amendment for that activity. So state law says, listen, dummies, you can't prosecute a case where there's the First Amendment protecting that speech or that activity. And yet here we are. Um, also, in the, my particular case, this township had a resolution that they claim gave the clerk the authority to remove me that day. Funny thing is, if you look at paragraph four of this very short resolution, it actually allows the, the politicking, you know, those kinds of political activities, as long as they're beyond 100 feet from the entrance to the building. No joke. Their own resolution allowed me to be there. She just said, oh, well, paragraph three has nothing to do with paragraph four. And paragraph three says I can kick people off the property. Except for paragraph four says, but you can't use paragraph th three to kick people off the property who are doing their political activities beyond 100 feet from the entrance. Anyway, again, just examples. Here's another big one that might happen in your community. Um, ordinances. Ordinances are what are allowed uh, to be used to regulate the people. That's that's local laws, ordinances, not resolutions. This clearly is a resolution. It's it's called a resolution. The prosecutor identifies it as a resolution. And it literally says the word resolution and be it resolved that. I mean, it's a resolution, right? Resolutions can't be used as authority to regulate the people. You can't give the clerk authority to throw somebody off property. I don't care what it says. It could have specifically said the clerk has authority to throw off Catherine Henry. Well, if it's a resolution, there's no right to use that to regulate the people. In fact, uh, in a lot of cases, and this is something that I know it's a lot of legal research that you'd have to do. If you're in Michigan, I already did the research for you. But if you're in another state, it's just something else to look at. But subject matter jurisdiction in Michigan for district courts, which is where this case is, District courts, literally, they only have jurisdiction over certain subjects. And there's a list, and it's really obvious, plus there's case precedent on this, that if there's a list, that means nothing else is included, unless what's in this list, right? It's just the stuff in the list. Well, this list talks about district courts having the right to, um, you know, hear cases that are misdemeanors or that are civil infractions or, you know, certain uh, things like that. But if you're talking about violating the law, the state law says, several state laws are talking about the right of the district court to hear criminal cases about local charter or ordinance violations, not the violation of a resolution. So if you have a local law, an ordinance, or your local constitution, your, your city's charter, right? Um, or your township's charter, those are your, it's essentially a law and the constitution. Well, yeah, the court has the right to enforce a violation of those, but a resolution, 
the court doesn't have a have a right to charge you or to hear a charge uh, where you're accused of violating a resolution. So the subject matter jurisdiction of the court is expressly, I mean, it, it doesn't cover violating resolutions, not in Michigan. But also look at resolutions. Um, local regulations cannot interfere, not resolutions, sorry, regulations, Local regula regulations cannot interfere with election activity by voters in any state because they're preempted by state election law. The prosecutor, the clerk, they've tried to claim in this case that, well, this case is about, you know, um, the, the clerk's right to prohibit certain people from being there or parking there on election day because, you know, voters have to get there. It's an election day. It's a special thing for election day. In fact, when I was in the back of the deputy's vehicle in handcuffs, bleeding and bruised and beat up, and he's saying, well, I'm trying to write this ticket, but I, I'm trying to look for the specific, the law that is the, the trespass law specific to election day. That's what he said. I said to him, well, there's no trespass law for specific to election day, but there are laws about not uh, being in certain parts of the of the property on election day, but that's in chapter 168. You're looking at trespassing, that's covered by chapter 750, general trespassing. So anyway, they clearly wanted something that was specifically applicable to state elect or to election day, but election day and everything about it has to be covered and is preempted in every state by state election law. That's actually required in our U.S. Constitution. Local regulations cannot interfere with vehicles and parking activity because those are issues, especially in Michigan, that are preempted by state vehicle and parking laws. There's a reason why, you know, there's, well, these, uh, the parking and vehicle laws in Michigan are written to specifically say um, you can't make local regulations, or if you do, they have to be done this, you know, particular way or whatever. Um, but it makes sense because vehicles are used to drive from one place to a next to the next. So if you have totally different laws about how you can operate your vehicle in this community, but the neighboring community is allowed to have a totally different set of laws about how you can operate your vehicle, how are you possibly supposed to be able to move your vehicle from one place to another? It makes no sense. No, there has to be uniform treatment within the whole state on how they handle vehicle laws. And, um, so they're preempted. They preempt any kind of local regulation that's talking about parking. Now, not to say your local municipality can't make, um, you know, a certain area a non-parking zone, but the way they do that has to be in compliance with state law. So for example, state law says, if you're going to make a no parking zone, you can only make a certain amount of your parking, no parking zone. You have to make others readily available on government property like this. Uh, if somebody violates uh, this, you can issue them a ticket uh, after six tickets or citations for bad parking. Then you'd be allowed to tow their car. Never, ever anywhere in state law does it say you're allowed to make uh, a local regulation that allows you to physically arrest and try to throw into jail someone who parks their car in a way that violates your resolution or your, your re regulation. Nowhere in there does that, does state law allow that to happen. So, 
Um, all right. So also local officials don't have endless authority to exclude people. What do I really mean here? Well, there's some legal terms. If you look at my briefs, especially the, the older ones that are right on that Allegan County page of my website, that um, it's, it's called, um, it's in the context of whether you have, you know, First Amendment protections for, you know, your right to free speech and assemble peacefully and petition your government for redress of grievances. Local officials can't infringe upon those First Amendment freedoms uh, just willy nilly, however they feel like, if they have the authority to do so anyway, which there th we already we already covered the fact that there is no authority that is given to the um, the township clerk in this situation to throw me off this this public property, right? She, she There's no law, no part of the constitution, nothing that gave her the authority to do that. But even if there was, um, these are the pieces that say, well, it wouldn't be valid. And one of the things is it wouldn't be valid because the resolution, the way that it's worded, it doesn't give her like certain parameters that she has to stick within. It, it claims to say she can basically um, control the parking uh, and people on there, however she feels like. Of course, besides what's talked about in the next paragraph about doing political activities. But paragraph three claims to just say, however she feels like, the, the clerk can, can tell people they got to go. Well, that's overbroad. It's called being uh, unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. So if you're looking for um, challenging any kind of government regulation relating to anything that, that seems like it's that, search those terms in my other, you know, my legal briefs, um, the subject matter jurisdiction, the substantive due process appeal, and you'll find tons of law all about that to be able to help your case. So... Um, all right. The court only has jurisdiction over trespassing and disturbing the peace. Remember that <laughs> they added that second charge to my case, uh, the night before the, the trial that we were supposed to have in July last year. So, uh, now I'm facing the, the trespassing and disturbing the peace criminal charges, right? For being there. So they're saying that, um, you know, I'm criminally responsible just for being there for criminal trespass and disturbing the peace, just because I was there, right? Well, the court doesn't have jurisdiction. There's no subject matter jurisdiction. And there's no authority uh, of a uh, clerk to act in any kind of case um, relating to throwing people off under one of these laws where the person there has no criminal intent. If there's no intent to remain there without authority and you know you have no authority, well, then there's no there's no intent to violate that law. There's You can't be criminally responsible for that law. If, if you don't have intent to disturb people, um, in other words, um, the next point here, you can't have a disturbing the peace uh, charge be held against somebody. You can't have a conviction for that. There's no case that can even exist where there's not even an allegation that the person was threatening public safety, threatening violence towards others, um, prohibiting people from doing their, you know, their lawful activities there or their duties, um, like the election workers, for example. If 
if I, as the person accused here, if I was, there's not even an allegation that I was threatening violence or interfering with others. And the whole dang thing is on video. If, if there's no evidence, let alone an allegation that I did any of that kind of stuff, if there's no intent for me to disturb the peace and there's no intent for me to be there without lawful authority, then the case can't go forward. The, the court has no jurisdiction over a case like that. The only time a court would have jurisdiction over a criminal case for trespassing or for disturbing the peace is if there's at least the allegation that a defendant intended to commit those crimes. In most cases, that exists. Now, there's some cases where it's called strict liability, and you can be criminally responsible without even knowing something, but that's very rare. And I would argue it's uh, oftentimes unconstitutional. It's not a due process of law, but whatever. Uh, for the sake of this, just realize that every state, in every state, in the vast majority of crimes, there has to be mens rea, the criminal intent right? The criminal intent, the criminal, the, the intent to commit that particular act, that's a crime. All right. So, wow, that was a lot of fun stuff. No, just kidding. Um, but, uh, and we went much longer today than I thought we would go because I actually didn't even have that many slides, but I'm hoping that that was able to, um, explain to you the, the three main types of jurisdiction. And um, let me uh, go ahead and uh, show you that again. So the three main types. So just to make things as simple as possible for you to be able to fight for your own freedom and, and those of your, the freedom of your loved ones. Territorial jurisdiction. Where is this case supposedly, where did it happen? Does the, that particular court have jurisdiction over something that's happening there or people that are physically there? Personal jurisdiction. Does the court have jurisdiction over you? Were you ever in that particular state or county? Did you ever do business or uh, travel through that county? Do you own property in that county? If, if none of those things ever happened, chances are the court doesn't have personal personal jurisdiction over you. Those are two things, though, that you have to raise as objections or reasons to dismiss the case right away. Otherwise, the court says, nah, nah, you didn't raise that soon enough. We're going to go ahead with this case. But the court never, no court anywhere in the whole U.S. has any jurisdiction to ever hear a case where they don't have subject matter jurisdiction. They can't hold hearings. They can't allow for uh, the case to continue and have um, anything happen. They can't pick juries. They can't have a, a jury trial or a bench trial. And if they do, such as in my case, if they claim to, uh, if, if they continue to go down the road acting like they have subject matter jurisdiction, but they actually don't, even if you're found guilty, the whole thing has to be thrown out on appeal because there's no jurisdiction. There's no right over that court to hear that kind of a case or to provide that kind of remedy. Now, if the court, if the prosecutor in my initial charge had charged me with, um, you know, uh, 
they wanted to bring some sort of civil case for civil trespassing. Um, maybe there's a way to look at that because my, my main focus has been talking about the fact they don't have the right to criminally charge me because there is no criminal trespass uh, on public on a property open to the general public. But if there was some sort of a claim that um, were the remedy that they were asking for is that the, they were asking the court to impose some sort of civil um, punishments on me through a civil case, not a criminal case, that'd be a different story. We'd have to look at that and, and see what was going on there. But that's not what, what's happening here. The prosecutor is prosecuting me for a crime, a criminal case. So, um, Anyway, make sure that you look at what kind of case is it, regardless of, of who you are. Can that can any other person be arrested in those uh, circumstances for that kind of a case? If they can't, there's no subject matter jurisdiction. Or you could think of another example, which um, is a little bit more limited, but it might help you. Uh, it, you can't bring a divorce case to a bankruptcy, a federal bankruptcy court judge. The judge has no right, no power, no authority to do anything in a divorce or custody case because they're only a federal bankruptcy judge. So I'm going to look real quick to see if we have been able to cover things. Lori, if you can shoot me something in the private chat, if there's something I need to cover, a question that I didn't already answer. Um, looks like there's lots of discussion. Um, hi, Julie on Facebook. Sorry, I didn't see you saying that earlier. Um, let's see. Um, lots of comments, YouTube, Facebook. I'm just looking here. Um, Donna, I am glad that you were able to find us as well. I have lots of information that I try to uh, make available to everyone so that they can fight for their freedom. Um, oh, hello from Taylor, Michigan. Uh, hello to all of you there. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, all right. I don't see any questions. If I'm overlooking, there's a lot going on here. Um, Kim, Kim on YouTube is asking about my case. I'm assuming that it, Kim, if you're still with us, that you have figured out by now with the rest of the discussion that my case is, is actually still going on. Uh, one of the things that I did, um, well, last week I filed a whole bunch of new cases and in the description or not new cases, excuse me, new documents with the court motions and briefs. Um, those, uh, the link to those motions and briefs is written right into the description of this video. Take a look and um, read, even just read in that first, uh, that first document that's listed on that page. Um, just look at that first one and uh, go to that um, mo motion for immediate consideration. It, it won't take you any more than 10 minutes, even if that, uh, five, 10 minutes maybe, um, to read that. It's basically the summary of all the bad things that are happening in this case and uh, the summary of the requests that I have made for the court to 
uh, do certain things, including outright dismissing the case with prejudice, but also if the case, uh, if the court's not going to do their job in that regard, to at least recognize that I have uh, the right to ADA accommodations, I have the right to open hearings, public trial, I have the right to assistance of counsel, uh, all kinds of things. So um, anyway, that's what that that first document is is basically the summary of all of that crazy stuff going on what i'm asking the court to do and why it's so urgent that is information that will be helpful to you in understanding uh, and learning about these issues but definitely if you have any kind of specific government action that you're challenging yourself so um i'm hoping that i caught everything uh okay so uh lori says it looks like um she thinks that i was able to get everything so if we did um oh micah hey nice to see you um it uh, is definitely something that uh, it, this is important. And if you have lingering questions about my case or um, about, you know, you've thought about this topic and you have questions, uh, we will do um, some other segments this week to go over things. You could post questions in there and perhaps uh, we could get them answered unless the segment itself ends up answering your question. Um, but uh, this is important. If they're willing to stretch some local regulations, if they're willing to stretch state laws to not only come after me, but arrest me on the spot violently in the presence of my young child, and to do that to me as a constitutional attorney, someone that they knew, they knew who I was, and they knew why I was there, not only because of that phone conversation I had with the deputy, no, the deputy knew that I was live streaming. The prosecutor in the moment, the sheriff in that moment knew that I was live streaming what was happening and they were watching the video feed and they were watching the comments of people that day. When all was said and done and they decided that they wouldn't drag me down to the jail, but I was still arrested and I was just leaving with the charges, um, beat up and frightened that no laws are being followed in this state, the deputy came back over to my car and said to me, hey, I really need you. Could you please do me this favor? No joke. Could you please do me this favor and go back on your live feed and tell everyone not to go to the jail because they're saying that they're going to go to the jail to support you. So can you do that? And then, you know, stop doing the live videos about this. Obviously, if they, they obviously knew who I was, they knew that I'd been doing videos to explain things to people. Uh, thousands more people were tuning in live to my videos back then than they do now, given you know that it was election day um, and everything else. So if thousands of people were viewing it live and they knew it and they were willing to specifically target me and come after me as a constitutional attorney, this is some small town in the middle of nowhere. You don't think they'd be willing to come after you? Make stuff up to come after you? Darn straight they will. So join with me in this fight in my own case so that we can work together to put all this garbage to an end because the irony is that the, the original, the petition that I wrote that we were circulating there that day, that I went there as an attorney to defend that petition 
would have created serious consequences for every single one of these government officials who violated my rights that day and afterward. That's the irony. So join in my fight for freedom, for my personal freedom, because this fight doesn't stop with me. This fight impacts all of you. And you better believe when this case hopefully is finally dismissed at the trial court level, that the judge finally does the right thing in my case, that we will pursue whatever we need to, to make sure this does not happen to anyone else, that none of these illegal or unconstitutional actions happen to anyone else. Not just in Allegan County, not just in Michigan, but in the whole country. So with that, I'm going to thank you for devoting so much of your time to spend with me on Tuesdays, especially today. I look forward to sharing more details about this, uh, this case, these, these topics with you in our shorter segments throughout the week. And of course, next Tuesday at noon for our next full episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. And uh, again, I do all of this work on a volunteer basis. I don't have a corporate sponsor. I don't have people that are paying me big bucks to argue cases in the Michigan Supreme Court or write constitutional amendments or defend my own freedom when I've done those two things. No, I'm doing all of this to educate you and provide you with the resources you need, including rewriting my whole website, which I promise is still coming. I'm doing this for free. So any little amount that you can donate to support my work is greatly appreciated. I've had people send me $3 because they wish they could have sent at least five, but they, they didn't have five. That means the world to me. If you're somebody that has a little bit more um, flexibility in your budget and you can make a much bigger one-time contribution, awesome. I look forward to that. If you're someone who... Um, you know, has limited means on a monthly basis, but you want to make sure you continue to support me and you set up a recurring donation or send a check regularly once a month, for example, for 10, 20, 50, $100, anything is appreciated because we have to stick together. And I don't see other attorneys truly stepping up to help you understand your rights and explain all of these things and be willing to join in and be the voice of the people as amicus in these parties, um, in these cases, to stop all this craziness. And as soon as this case, this criminal case concludes, I can finally go full on into those other cases that we talked about earlier this year, where I'm going to be filing those amicus briefs on behalf of the people. So again, thank you for your support and uh, look forward to seeing you in our next uh, segments and episodes. Have a great day, everyone.